Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, host of Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. ChrisKnoll.com. C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Sign up for email updates from my website, YourPositiveImprint.com. Listen to my podcast from my website or any podcast platform. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite podcast platform. And thanks for listening. Design your own t-shirt, hat, hoodie, sweatshirt, or even duffel bag. Use quotes from my guests as part of your design. Rules come out Thursday, June 16th. Please enter. You could win your item with your design on it. Rules again come out June 16th on my website, yourpositiveimprint.com. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? Professor Nathan Bindoff and his background in physical oceanography is so extensive. There is no way I can cover his massive research studies, but we can narrow it down. Well, Nathan is a professor of physical oceanography at the University of Tasmania's Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. And my gosh, he was the coordinating lead author on the Oceans chapter in the fourth Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2007, in which he was awarded a certificate for his own contribution of Al Gore winning the Nobel Peace Prize. That is just so amazing. And then again in 2014, he took a lead in the fifth assessment climate change report. Well, Professor Bindoff and his colleagues documented some of the first evidence of the high melt rates of the Antarctic ice sheet. His most recent work is on documenting the decline in oxygen content of the oceans and dynamics of the Southern Ocean. When he's not on a boat doing research, he tries to be on his own boat that he built from wood, a hobby that he so much enjoys. And now he is here to talk about all of this and what the future holds for our planet. Professor Nathan Bindoff, thank you so much for coming on the show to share your amazing positive imprints. Thank you, Catherine. That's a, a lovely introduction. This is so incredible to finally meet you after reading so many articles and reading your research and hearing about you from other researchers. There's so much to talk about, and I'm going to kind of let you guide as to what research you want to chat about. Professor Bindoff explains who he is and how he came to be part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Oh, Nathan's a, uh, a practical, pragmatic sort of guy that uh, <laughs> likes, likes to... Actually, I, I often draw parallels to uh, parboiled detective stories where, you know, the, the, the lone detective is out there or private eye um, is out there and he's taking the clues and kind of discovering something. And, and that's kind of how I feel about science, actually. You know, you... you look at observations, you discover things, you compare them, you get evidence and you build a story. And it's just like that parboiled detective guy 
those parboiled detective stories where you figure out what's going on and then you write it up and turn it into a paper. And the pragmatic part of me is the part that likes to turn this sort of discoveries in science into things that are important and relevant to people who think about the environment. So, you know, the participation in IPCC, for instance, uh, was sort of a fluke, a, a wonderful fluke, by the way. I was in the corridor one day and one of my ex-supervisors came by and he said, oh, you should, you should nominate for IPCC. And that's all he said. And that night I went away, I uh, put in a nomination and that began my career in IPCC. I was uh, invited to be a coordinating lead author in that fourth assessment report, which was the one that actually led to a moment in history where the rejection of climate change had been very strong through 2005, 2006. And then suddenly the Stern report came out and that talked about the economic consequences of climate change. And Al Gore had his movie on the inconvenient truth. And then finally, this fourth assessment came out, and in 2000 and late 2007, 2008, we had a changed narrative around uh, the acceptance of climate change and the need to act, and it was a terrific moment. And then it was sort of topped off by IPCC winning with Al Gore the Nobel Peace Prize, and 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 I actually like the fact that it's not. It's not a, a prize for scientific excellence. It's not a prize for intellectual endeavor. Actually, it's a prize for creating an opportunity, if you like, for peace. So you can see I, I like the observations, I like the detail, I like a narrative. And then actually, if it does good, if it does good, then that makes me very happy. <laughs> we talked about some of his quotes, and I brought up this one. When I commenced my career, the question of whether the ocean state had changed was completely open. It was a voyage of discovery. Well, Professor Bindoff has been on this voyage of discovery, bringing back his research to share with the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I asked Professor Bindoff about the history of the IPCC and the state of the ocean. So let, let's talk IPCC for a moment. IPCC was a, a vision, and that vision was an understanding that the changing composition of the atmosphere, so this was from measurements of atmospheric CO2, the changing composition of the atmosphere was going to influence the planet. At that moment, there was a decision made and it was in the time of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, a decision was made to create a panel. And that panel was a joint effort between the United Nations Environment Program and the World Meteorological Organization. And what happened was that that panel was created very perceptively. It excluded, it's not quite true, but it basically excluded non-governmental organizations. So they made it a report to governments. And because it's a 
United Nations process, that process demands that every country has a what they call a focal point, and that focal point in each country is the avenue by which the IPCC reports and their development and their commissioning is created within each of the countries that participate. United Nations is 195 countries and almost all participate in the IPCC process. So this process immediately meant that every report is well understood at some levels of governments. That's unusual relative to other kinds of reports. There's a similar report around chlorofluorocarbons in the upper atmosphere, and there's a similar process there. So that's basically the process around the IPCC. It was created in 1992, I think, and it came from the inspiration of Bert Bolin. Bert Bolin was a, a Swedish atmospheric scientist, famous actually, and it was him plus a couple of others. And the first report was quite very was very thin actually. It, it didn't even say that humans were influencing climate. But curiously, that report was enough to create the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that's the body that runs the Conference of Parties every year, which negotiates the processes around emissions and hopefully emissions reductions as we go into the future. You've given a wonderful explanation on the IPCC, and I appreciate that because I was unaware of some of the history, and I was definitely unaware in how much of the partaking you have had in this historical and most important piece that is going to take us and is taking us into the future with regard to legislation and changes in lifestyle. Yeah. So IPCC evolves, actually. And in the first report, there was no mention of the oceans. And in the... Oh, there was no mention of oceans? Correct. And then the second assessment, there was... uh, no mention really either and then in the third assessment they talked about sea level and then in the fourth assessment they actually introduced an oceans chapter and and the reason an oceans chapter was introduced was because there had been a bit of a revolution going on in the oceanography community it goes to the first question you asked the oceans were considered to be static unchanging, they had so much inertia that they were basically unable to change. They were a kind of a fixed flywheel, if you like, circulating the global oceans. And then increasingly, oceanographers and atmospheric scientists have understood that there was El Nino. Then we came to understand actually the deep ocean was changing subtly as well. And we found that that was on starting to appear on global scales. So what really happened was that we understood that the oceans too were responding, that they weren't static and that they were changing. And that knowledge and the amount of literature that was starting to accumulate at that time 
allowed for the introduction of this chapter around oceans. It's the building of the momentum around the science. There was a increased realization that the oceans were important, that they were changing and evolving. And at that time, we believed that the ocean uh, sea level change was through primarily through thermal expansion. So that's where you warm up the ocean and it expands and that's the biggest contributor to the rising sea levels. That's actually changing again. So that rising sea levels are now dominated by the melt of the ice caps, both Antarctica, Greenland and the glaciers, mountain glaciers as well. So the Heating of the oceans isn't the biggest component to rising sea level anymore. So that's a new level of knowledge that we've actually got. So this is part of this voyage of discovery where we're actually learning more, progressively more about the Earth system in response to climate change. One of Nathan's earliest discoveries was that of the planet's melting Antarctic ice shelves. He and his colleagues made measurements, studied the data, and concluded something absolutely extraordinary. With colleagues, um, so I wrote some early papers around the melt of the Amory ice shelf. In fact, I remember a conversation. I said, oh, 50% of this uh, ice shelf is melting from the ocean, from the underside. It's a paper that's buried in the past, but the glaciologists telling me that, that was impossible. Well, Actually, uh, what's happened is this has become a prime research activity here in Hobart and elsewhere in the world mm -hmm. because the capacity for those ice sheets to have a hu huge impact on rising sea level is enormous. I've used a lot of superlatives there, but it's true. There were some papers just recently which some people are backing away from a little bit but they were predicting 16 metres, projecting 16 metres of sea level from Antarctica alone by 2,500. So think about 16 metres of sea level. That's enormous. Mm -hmm. These estimates are reducing, but they're still very large. Just recently, in the report that we did on oceans and cryosphere and a changing climate, the governments insisted on showing the sea level rise projections out to 2300. So for a lot of people, 2300 is a long way away. We don't care. But those sea level projections were showing at the upper range, five metres of future sea level rise by 2300. Now, just to give a uh, context, I think if it's eight metres, we can row in our boat to the footstep of Capitol Hill and step out. Of course, in the case of the Thames Parliament, uh, we could step through the windows. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, most of Florida has disappeared. South Australia, I think if it goes to eight metres, we can have an ocean in the middle of Australia. So, so you know, these are very significant, profound possibilities for a future sea level in an unmitigated world. That's and key. That's the key. And so, so it hasn't happened, of course. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's something that humans could materially alter by 
making certain decisions. So it's sort of a value judgment. We can have this hotter, higher sea level world if we choose, or we can actually step back, mitigate emissions, and not have that hotter, higher sea level world. And there are some distinct benefits, I think. <laughs> That's my value judgment if we were to reduce our emissions to zero. Oh, I think it is a decision that we do need, but there are people who won't change until it's legislated. So some of the language we might use, we scientists might use, is that we society needs a license to reduce emissions. Society has the license to omit them. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, we now need a license to reduce them to zero. And uh, that is actually something that no individual can accomplish, right? right. So, so it therefore means that no individual country can actually accomplish it alone. So it does require a genuine collaboration of all the nations to actually agree and then follow a pathway to reduced emissions to, to kind of avoid the worst outcomes of climate change. Some people may not realise, but we've already committed to quite a bit of climate change, right? We've already come one degree of warming since the instrumental record began, say, in the 1850s. Now, one degree of global warming means that actually over Australia, it's 1.4 times that. Over the Arctic, it's uh, even more. And over the tropics, it's actually less. It's a global average. Some areas will have larger temperature changes than others. We've already committed to that. We can already see that the water cycle over the planet has been altered. Mm -hmm. We can already see that Greenland and Antarctica are losing increased mass. That's something that's become very obvious in the last 20 years, part of this voyage of discovery. These things mean that we've already committed to those changes if we switched off our emissions tomorrow, right, which is would be an extraordinary thing, mm -hmm. we would still warm up by another 0.3 to 0.4 degrees. If we want to avoid 0.5, we'd have very little time left, actually, if you think about it. Because if we've committed to a further 0.3 degrees, we've come 0.1, we've only got 0.2 of headroom. <laughs> yes. So, so, so you can see that it's now becoming a very urgent problem if you want to minimise the consequences of climate change. One of the things that became obvious was that the interaction between the ocean and the ice sheet was quite significant. And so we actually did a wintertime voyage. We went to Antarctica in July. So that's our southern hemisphere winter. We were there against the continent in a icebreaker and making measurements right in front of the, of a, um, it's not, not the biggest glacier, uh, it's called the Mertz Glacier. It's actually, that glacier is now broken off, but it was a source of very dense, what we call Antarctic bottom water, very dense waters some of the densest waters in the world. And because they're dense, they'll actually flow down the continental slope. So they'll start off on the continental shelf, they'll flow down the continental slope, 
and then they end in the abyss. And they actually drive a circulation that we call the overturning circulation. And this overturning circulation is an important component of the global thermohaline circulation or the global thermo global thermohaline circulation in the world. It, it's a driver of the deep ocean circulation. And as a consequence, we were there exactly to study that flow. Now, I've talked about the deepest ocean, but right there in front of the glacier, you also see, and it's often the case, very fresh waters that reflect the melt off the bottom of the glaciers themselves. And so we estimated that melt rate and we came to understand how much was being lost by the ice sheet there in winter. What's new and more important to the story of climate change is we've realised that these glaciers are thinning and so they're losing, they're not in equilibrium. If they're in equilibrium, sea level would be unchanged, but actually they're thinning and so sea level is actually going up as a consequence and the ice sheet itself on average is actually losing mass. So it's transferring mass that's in the Antarctic ice sheet itself into the oceans and causing sea level to go up. And that voyage was the first ever against the Antarctic continent in winter. That was 1998. That voyage was actually on the relatively newly commissioned Aurora Australis. So that was the Australian icebreaker. That ship has now come to end of life and it's about to be replaced. There'll be a new Australian icebreaker that will replace the Aurora Australis. It was both a science ship and also a resupply ship. And the moment that we actually got that icebreaker, the Australian Antarctic research took a quantum step upwards. That vessel gave Australia new capabilities that it didn't have prior to 1992. It's interesting. I... I was sort of um, a little bit hesitant, I have to say. There you go. I was a little bit hesitant about going to Antarctica and working at sea. I've spent more than two years at sea now uh, <laughs> in my career, right? So I've uh, got over the hesitancy. Yes. But the first trip, I was it was actually a particularly rough trip. I remember kind of feeling only 90%, 90% of the time. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was, that was a tough voyage, actually, and, and you know, shaped my life. Seagoing life is actually uh, very pleasant. Once you get into the rhythm of it, it's a very simple life. And in the case of research in Antarctica itself, you get the most fantastic views you know, you're privileged in a way. You you see these ice sheets, um, they're, they're cliffs right there in front of the ocean and they're brilliantly white. And then the green of the green to sort of clear blue of the ocean and the contrast in colour is striking. And, and then sometimes you see these ice sheets, they have icebergs and they're flat tabular kinds of icebergs 
icebergs are always flat and tabular, typically in the Antarctic, quite unlike the icebergs in the from the Greenland ice sheet. And but often you see surf on the they have wave cut platforms on them, and you can see surf uh, there. And oh, people, that's cool. And some people have actually surfed them. So so th- th- there are these very beautiful. There's this sea life, some extraordinary sea life. The thing that's grabbed me the most, actually, and what allows me to keep on going back is the science that's associated with it. The science, in the end, is the driver of this activity and and the, the joy of seeing it all is kind of a peripheral thing. <laughs> hate, hate to say it that way, but actually that's what makes it for repeat trips. Well, it certainly shows your dedication to not just the work that you're enjoying doing, but to the future of decision-making of our planet and populations that live on our planet. I think that's a huge responsibility for scientists to undertake when you know very well that when you are doing this research and you're coming back with the statistics and the projections, and if we keep going the way we're going and things don't get changed, if you lose populations, animal populations, that's a that's a heavy emotional burden, I think. You're quite right. But, but I'm not actually frustrated by the world. I feel personally that I've actually done the work. I've yeah. made, made with the measurements, we've reported the science, I've worked with IPCC with literally, you know, uh, 200 to 300 scientists with a similar kind of thinking. We've put these assessments together with literally seven to 10,000 different papers. We've assessed it, we've written the reports, they've been communicated to government. We have actually done our job. And, and, and in that sense, I'm not frustrated because I can see that actually to make the decision and for society to agree to act on it is a big thing too. And we're in that process. So my task is really to continue to do that job, to communicate what's going on, how things are changing, why it might be urgent, um, what are the consequences, because that's, that's the projections part. You know, we can look a bit into the future. If we continue on this path, this is what it will mean. And, and if we continue to do that, then hopefully the rest of society can find the solutions that allow us to transform to the new world where we don't have emissions going into the atmosphere, we limit the amount of damage caused by climate change, and we address the other problems that we need to solve. And that's a deeply society-related question. I think scientists have done a terrific job in communicating it. It's deeply political to get to perhaps uh, where we might like to be, mm-hmm. but we're in this moment where we're trying to get there. That's why we have these institutions like IPCC, United Nations, the World Meteorological Organization, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's why they have a meeting every year, every year. The ministers and bureaucrats of every country actually go and discuss how to make the decisions. They may not succeed, 
but they actually do do it every year. So, you know, there's a considerable effort going into the process and hopefully we'll turn the corner and uh, really have action. We have had action in the past, and that's why I'm not uh, pessimistic. I, I think it is a soluble problem. And in fact, there was a report just released that describes the fact that, you know, with a concerted effort, we could actually limit global warming to one and a half degrees. We could actually do it. And there are pathways to get there. Scientifically, there are pathways to get there. And then sociologically and decision-making, let's see if we can get to those paths. So, so you can see I've stepped back from being frustrated. Sure, sure. <laughs> because sure. I feel like we've I've done as much as we can. Scientists have done as much as they can. And you've been and, great at what you are doing. Absolutely, it's inspiring. And so, well, thank you. And so the other half of it is, can we, society, accept that, make the value decision and transform itself? And the nice thing, I think, is that 20 years ago, renewables may not have been so cheap. And you can see the huge increase in renewables in the landscape. And you can see many of the transformations of the energy business that are going on. And you can see the pressure on the coal industry. So you can see that there are forces and pressures trying to change the pathway that we were on. Emissions are still going up. We haven't turned the corner, but you can see that there's action. Not enough, maybe. Maybe it's my worldview. But that narrative I gave was one of precisely about hope. It was about the hope that we could collaborate globally and, and actually uh, understand the innovations that we can embrace and change the course. And it does require the world to do it together. Bindoff predicted the catastrophic fires that would occur. Right now, my own state of New Mexico is experiencing horrific fires, which are the absolute worst in recorded history. Well, Professor Bindoff wrote papers years ago on this very subject. He wrote, If the temperature rose and continues to rise, sea levels could rise by 3 to 4 meters and Greenland could disappear. There would be at least a 20% increase in fire danger and catastrophic fire events would be more likely to occur. It's, uh, the fire season has been an extraordinary wake-up call for yeah. Australia and the wildfires in the USA had extraordinary impacts. The report that you referred to, we wrote, basically pointed to the fact that these extreme conditions are going to occur more frequently, so we said twice as often, but they actually affect a bigger area uh, as well. And then when you put those two together, they turn out to be four times more workload. It's like a 20% per decade increase. So these are non-trivial changes that are emerging because of that warming. And it's primarily because of the warming. There are other things that go into fire, but there's that's primarily because of the warming that goes associated with the increase in the fire danger. So, so yes, we did talk about that years ago, and I'm off to meet the Premier today, and I'll probably mention it again. <laughs> 
Well, my goodness, I would love to have an update on that meeting that Professor Bindoff had with the Premier. Well, today, Professor Nathan Bindoff and his team are studying oxygen levels. Yeah, so, so oxygen, a lot of people don't understand that the ocean is a, a very small reservoir of oxygen, obviously critical for fish to uh, live off and much of life within the oceans. But it turns out that if you make measurements of the oxygen content in the oceans, there are some areas where it's actually declining. And this work that we're doing is actually about documenting those declines. And there are some particularly big declines in the equatorial zone of the Pacific and also in the Indian and Atlantic Oceans. And there are declines at high latitudes as well. These declines aren't so, aren't so big that the uh, fish can't, can't actually still function, but the declines are altering the distribution to some extent of fish in the equatorial parts. It's just reflecting the fact that we're on this voyage of discovery where the uh, oceans are changing and oxygen is just another one of those things that's changed. And, you know, it's it's not talked about a, a lot, but it's actually a thing that's going to have influence, particularly in the equatorial zone, the future equatorial zone. In the past records, the paleo-oceanographic records we have, it's often talked about the chain variations in oxygen in the global oceans. So geologists have understood that there are uh, changes in the oceans on long time scale. The difference here is that these changes that we're talking about are connected to human activity. So it's a human-induced oxygen decline. And in fact, in uh, the United States, there have been some famous uh, kills of crabs washed up on the Oregon coast. And these are connected to this changing oxygen levels in the equatorial ocean, actually. And at various times, those low oxygen zones catch up with the crabs, which are sitting out there on the continental shelf. They suddenly don't have enough oxygen, so they actually asphyxiated, I suppose, and then washed up. That is an example of the growth of this oxygen minimum layer in that zone. So it is influencing uh, marine life and their distribution. It's a sort of a, a localised catastrophe for those animals. Tuna populations have tended to move a little bit in response to these oxygen content changes. There are other kinds of effects on uh, marine wildlife. It's, it's always complex but that's actually what's going on and uh, the project that I was that, that I was uh, referring to there is about understanding how that oxygen is actually changing the global oceans and we have relatively few observations for it so it's it's a um, it's not as detailed or accurate picture as we might have for ocean temperatures Oh, but you'll get that. With a few more measurements, we'll get <laughs> right. there. Yeah. And, yeah, and the reason I had mentioned fisheries is because that will be an economics question. Correct. Yeah, so so this is 
something we've detailed in our most recent IPCC report, actually. There are three things going on, if you like. The atmosphere is warming up. The surface ocean warms up at a faster rate than the uh, deeper ocean. And because the surface ocean is warming up at a faster rate, it, uh, warmer water is lighter. And so uh, the surface waters are becoming more buoyant relative to the deeper waters. And now oxygen mostly gets into the deeper waters because there's a what we call ventilation. Literally, you know, uh, the exchange between the atmosphere and the deep ocean. Um, and that process is inhibited or reduced or slowed by the warming up of those surface waters because it's actually physically harder to take the surface water and move it into the deeper ocean. And because it's physically harder, there's less oxygen being moved into the deeper ocean. So when I say deeper, below 100 metres. And as a consequence of biological activity in that depth range, the oxygen content is, the oxygen is consumed and it uh, becomes lower. So this decline in oxygen is really caused by surface ocean warming and, and a reduced rate of exchange between the atmosphere and the, and the deeper ocean below 100, 200, 300 metres. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what we've been documenting. And we can attribute it to the human influence because we know that in following the scientific method, if you like, models that do not have changing CO2, do not have warming of the surface ocean, um, will still have the same equilibrium oxygen inside. But when you warm the ocean progressively from rising greenhouse gases, you find that the pattern of oxygen change agrees with what's observed. And you can formally attribute it to that rise in CO2 in the atmosphere. So the response looks like climate change. And that's why we say it's to do with human activity. So, so Catherine, I can talk quite a lot, as you might have uh, appreciated. But let me say it's been a pleasure to chat about these bigger picture issues with a little bit of extra time versus a normal media event. It allows, I think, a um, kind of a nice discourse about the problem that is confronting the earth. I'm, I'm very optimistic that we can actually solve these, this, this particular problem because um, I can see the innovation that we require, the technologies we require. I can see that there's uh, potential for the transformation, transformations that we require to occur. And so I'm actually hopeful that we can accelerate the progress and actually minimise minimise the problem at hand, and and of course I can then just go back to doing ordinary old oceanography. Don't have to uh, <laughs> uh, work on these socially relevant problems. Become the academic that I was. <laughs> um, you know, it's been very interesting and fascinating time to be uh, working in the oceans. The oceans. Unlike meteorology, the oceans are 20 years behind the meteorological community. And so 
I've actually entered this career, entered this career at a, at a kind of an exciting moment where we've kind of become to understand much more about the oceans and the, we've developed tools and methods to explore it and see how it's changing and how it's moving and how it's responding to climate change, for instance. I've been a participant in these things in IPCC. I feel actually that uh, if there are any budding scientists out there, if you do it right, it can be a very exciting and exhilarating career. Oh, I, I agree. Thank you so much, Nathan. You are just so good in your field and you are a very well-spoken speaker. You're extremely inspiring and your positive imprints are certainly global, but your, your imprints are such a legacy because this research is for yesterday, today, and the future, and it's going to be obviously research needed. And I commend you for taking on the role that you are taking, not just as a scientist, but as a spokesperson, and I appreciate that. I think that I want to end with letters to Earth. Nathan, I'm going to share my screen with you because this letter that you wrote to Earth is very inspiring and it just shows your optimism and everything that you believe in for the future of our Earth. Um, thank you, Catherine. From time to time, I do think about the future. My dream is that the picture we so frequently paint will be different not the catastrophe that is so frequently forecast, but a world where the pressing problems are cut off, circumvented with human ingenuity and self-realization and mobilized by collaborative effort. A world where humans decide the future to be sustainable and transformed, and a transformed one that successfully reconciles climate change, our needs for food, energy, and all of life. That is what I imagine we can achieve. Professor Nathan Bindoff, thank you so much for your inspiration and your commitment to your science and research. Thank you for sharing on your positive imprint. Thank you, Catherine. To learn more about Professor Nathan Bindoff and his research, go to University of Tasmania website, utas.edu.au, and search button for Nathan Bindoff, N-A-T-H-A-N-B-I-N-D-O-F-F. You can read more letters from scientists and oceanographers at isthishowyoufeel.com. You can also write your own letter to Earth by going to letterstoearth.com. In two weeks, join members of the Matt Palmer Band as they share music and their climate change research from England. Your positive imprint. What's your PI?